Hello. Here at last is the much-alluded-to conversation I had with my former student, Alison Fishbach. I'm a few days late in posting it, not because I've been huddling in a dark, freezing, and snowbound house, fortunately, but because the wireless internet at my sister's house works in mysterious ways. Anyway, I'm back in my stolid and comfortable, if less wintry and mountainous, home base in Delaware. Alison Fishbach graduated from Washington College in 2010. Her senior honors thesis was on mortality and immortality in Tolkien, and she paid careful attention to the different attitudes that characters in Tolkien have towards death or towards deathlessness. There have been many questions from listeners that I've put off because I wanted to leave them for this discussion with Allison, so let's jump right into it. I think we should start with just a discussion of mortality and immortality and what that means, because I think a lot of people get confused about what exactly is the state of men compared to the state of elves? And some people, I think, think about perhaps the relationship between elves and men uh, a little differently from the way that Tolkien describes it. And so I think it would be good for us to kind of start with some of the background. You did a really great job, Allison, in your thesis of going through and looking at the the background materials, the way things that are published in volumes like Morgoth's Ring, where, where Tolkien is really kind of going, going through and explaining the system and how it works. So I think it would be best to kind of start off there. So... The basic premise in both races is that both of them have a physical being, a physical body, and a spirit. So both elves and men are body and spirit. But the difference between them, basically, is how those two things are related. Right, right. So usually with men, we find that the body can die and the spirit leaves. That's the way it goes. It's not in Arda anymore. Whereas with elves, they're stuck here, essentially. That's where they're confined. So with elves, you find that the body can die, but that doesn't mean they're dead, in a sense. You can slay elves. They go through wars and, and battles and things like that. Right. But... So immortality certainly doesn't mean invulnerability no, or anything. No. And this is what I... I, I hate saying bad <laughs> things about the films. This is actually not a bad thing about the film. I guess it's a bad thing about Orlando Bloom, which is a different <laughs> thing than saying a bad thing about the film. But it always kind of drives me crazy. In the cast commentary on The Fellowship of the Ring I never film, actually watched it. <laughs> Yeah, I didn't watch, actually, I made it through the cast commentary on The Fellowship of the Ring. I didn't make it through the cast commentary on the rest of them. But but anyway, I did on The Fellowship of the Ring, and Orlando Bloom, is his voiceover comes at, right after Gandalf falls into the chasm in Casa Doom, and they, at the scene where they're all on the rocks and weeping and everything, and you see Legolas kind of like walking around with this puzzled look on his face. And Orlando Bloom explains, I was really sorry that I heard this explanation because I can't really enjoy that scene the same way after knowing this, but anyway, he <laughs> said that like the reason he was doing that face in that scene, like that kind of puzzled, quizzical look, is that he was thinking that since Legolas was an elf, he like would never have really seen death before, so he was like just kind of puzzled about this strange death thing that had just happened. Which I'm afraid is like just a horribly <laughs> ignorant kind of thing to so say. So you never read the books. <laughs> well, yes, as is true, sadly, of several of the cast members. But yeah, no, exactly. So that's, that is certainly very much different from the way that elves... Not only would, of course, he have would have been alive for a long time and so therefore <laughs> seen thousands and thousands of people die, but also... I mean, elves themselves die all the time in battle. So that is a really important thing to remember. They are not unkillable. Mm -hmm. You know, I think of that wonderful line in The Curse of Mandos in the Silmarillion, you know, where the messenger of the Valar, probably Mandos himself, says, but slain ye may be, and slain ye <laughs> shall be, right? Uh, that's, <clears throat> yeah, 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 yeah. So their bodies die. But as you say, that yeah. doesn't mean they're dead in the same sense that it means for a person. 
Right. For and, a human, yeah. And they're both, they're, I mean, elves are separated from Middle Earth when they die. They, they go to Valinor. But men are just completely cut off. No one knows where they go. So that's the real difference. That Right. So both of them have body and spirit. Both of their bodies can suffer. The spiritual difference between the two is that when men die, their bodies leave the circles of the world and go <laughs> we know not, not whither. Where. Yeah, and that's exactly... Because, of course, the Silmarillion, written from the elvish perspective, so the elves... Don't say much about it because they really have no idea what goes on with people, and it's so different from them. They go to Valinor. Their spirits remain within the earth, and so their body perishes, but their spirit flees back to Valinor. And that's why we can meet them again, why they will sometimes get new bodies again. Right. And can return. This is what seems to have happened with Glorfindel, for instance. He dies in the first age and Mm -hmm. then, you know, returns (laughs) Glorfindel 2.0, just like Gandalf (laughs) 2.0. So, I mean, that's... Which is, I think, also... It's something that people, I think, don't understand enough about why it was such a big, why such a big deal is made of the parting of Elrond and Arwen. Right, right. With the parting, when she goes to Valinor, as opposed to when she actually decides to become mortal. Of course, it's much worse when she actually decides to become mortal, because elves expect that they're going to meet again in Valinor, and the truth is they're never going to meet again, ever. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean... (laughs) So for elves, I mean, even, okay, like, your loved one dies. And it's not that that isn't sad. It isn't that elves don't care about that. Mm -hmm. But it's not a permanent separation. We separated for a while, maybe (laughs) a long while, maybe an age of the world. I mean, maybe thousands of years. But, you know, (laughs) you're you're all staying in the same place, basically. (laughs) You know, sooner or later, you'll come back. Not until the end of the world are any of them really going to depart. But Arwen is going to. Arwen and Elrond are departing then for the last time until after the end of the world. Right. When... There is, apparently, like, there are hints that there will be a reunion then. (laughs) Right. There will be a resurrection. You know, there will be a new heaven and a new earth. And at that point, the elves and the men will be reunited. But, but yeah, it's a a serious party. And that's Mm -hmm. why, also, why in Silmarillion, the story of Luthien, from the elvish perspective, is considered such a tragedy. Right. It's also the first time that happens. So, I mean, the elves, they don't expect it in a sense. It's completely new to them, that kind of mortality. And, I mean, men have to deal with that. They know that when their loved ones die, they're not going to see them again. But it's a whole new thing for elves. Yes, yes. When Aragorn, you know, sort of summarizes the story of Baron and Luthien, he really does so. Well, he doesn't... He uses the third person. He doesn't speak from the Elvish perspective, but what he's recounting is the (laughs) Elvish version of the story, which he's heard in Rivendell. And his conclusion of the story is, So it is that Luthien Tenuvio, alone of the elf kindred, has died indeed and left the world, and they have lost her whom they most loved. That idea of loss, Luthien, is the only elf who's been really lost, Mm -hmm. and Arwen is going to be the second elf, (laughs) the second Luthien who's going to be really lost. Okay, lost from the elven perspective, from those who are remaining in Middle-earth. So there are two main differences that we should focus on in the difference between elves and men in mortality. One is that spiritual destiny, where the soul goes when it is separated from the body. And also, of course, as a sort of subset to that, implicitly the relationship between the soul and the body. Mm -hmm. The reason that elves can be rebodied again is not that there's like a, a new act of creation necessarily but it's almost like their spirit can kind of read and Tolkien was kind of fuzzy on this process yeah are you talking like the strength of their spirit or almost the fact that they're very tied to middle earth much more so than men are so you have these 
places where they walk through the earth. That's where their home is. They're part of it. So I was thinking, I was rereading it, and the fact that they do stay on Middle Earth says, I think, more about the makeup of their spirit than anything else. Same for men. They're shorter lived for one thing, but again, they don't have this kind of partnership mm-hmm. that you find that elves have. So. Yeah, and it's mm-hmm. part of why... One thing that I think is a little bit... It's not a complete misunderstanding, but it's a little bit of a misunderstanding, or rather they're not... People don't always see the full significance of it, I think. is when people look at like, the differences between elves and men, right? And you get as was dramatized through the extraordinary exploits of Orlando Bloom in the films. <laughs> elves are, like, greater than men in almost every way, right? They're stronger, they're quicker, right. they're faster, they're, <laughs> they're more beautiful, they're taller. They're, I mean, just like mm. in, in almost every dimension, superior to men. And so it's easy to kind of look at that and look at this as, like, so Tolkien has created basically this, like, Superman race, <laughs> which is, you know, who are just... So, like, men just, you know, suck in comparison to elves in every way. But that's, that's not really saying the whole thing. In part, it is true that he is, you know, he has created this race which are above mortal kind. In the way in which the elves, you know, the fairies in medieval literature were. I mean, when a, when a human being comes across a fairy in the forest in a medieval romance... He is coming across a creature who is greater, more powerful, and really above right. his scope, uh, you know, metaphysically in, in every way. And so there certainly is that aspect. And so I think in that sense, the perception of that kind of hierarchy is appropriate. But it's mm-hmm. it's not that he's simply denigrating men. Like the, the point is the reason elves have so much more to them, you know, have so much more. Their spirit is stronger and, and therefore also their bodies and everything else is that... Mm-hmm. They're built to last, you know. I mean, they have a spirit which is designed to extend over the entire length, you know, the thousands and thousands of years of, of, of the existence of the earth. And men are... <laughs> are not. Are not. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, exactly. They're designed for a few decades, mm-hmm. you know, and they've, they've only got enough juice to last that long. That's why they wither and get old right. in the end. and. And I think that we can you can sort of see some reflections of this. That is the way that the spirit and sort of the strength of the spirit is manifested in the physical body, even in mortals, right? I mean, this is why the Numenorians live longer right. than other men because they have these greater, stronger spirit spirits. It is not coincidental that they are both taller and stronger than <laughs> everybody else, and also live longer because both of them are kind of a reflection of this spirit. You can see it in Theoden. Right? You know, Theoden is withered and old and decrepit because his spirit is weak. Right. right? I mean, his spirit has been weakened by its own despair and by its own buying into the lies that Wormtongue is whispering to him. But when his spirit is re-strengthened, his body is rejuvenated and he performs these feats, these feats of valor and these feats of strength, which, you know, he just simply would not physically have been capable of. And that's just a reflection of his, right. of the renewal of his spirit. But age, of course, is the other thing. I said there's sort of mm-hmm. two major differences. One is the ultimate destiny of the soul. The other, of course, is this whole aging thing. That's what right. elves do. <laughs> uh, and, of course, Legos would not have been quizzical and puzzled to see it because he would have seen it many, many thousands of times. But anyway, mm-hmm. he still that is the one thing that is alien to elves. Right. Elves don't look at somebody dead on a battlefield or something and say, oh, my gosh, what happened? I can't possibly <laughs> comprehend that. But they do have that reaction. 
to, to old age and yeah. the first king of men Bayor, Bayor his death is the first time they ever see that and they are puzzled by it they have no idea what is happening because in themselves they don't die from old age that's a very foreign concept so. yeah I mean it seems like that's really the moment when they fully recognize the actual differences between the two races mm-hmm. you know they, they knew that they were different in some ways but they didn't get that at all like this the death from weariness. As I said, elves are subject to deaths primarily through two things. One is through violence, and the other is through sorrow. They can kind of pine away. And there again, you see that's <laughs> like a... It's not one well, spiritual death in the sense that their soul is extinguished, but mm-hmm. the death of their bodies is a reflection of the weakening of their spirits, right? Um, but just to, to grow weary of the world and pass away... Right. To use that cliched death euphemism, but one which... <laughs> from an elven perspective, is actually very appropriate. Pass mm-hmm. away is exactly what they, humans they do, do, and which elves don't understand. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's a really big deal. And I think you can see the old age thing being a really important reflection, both of the difference in their bodies and also in the as an illustration, or, or rather as pointing to the, the, the ultimate differences in their spiritual destinies. Thinking about how death and immortality then comes into the stories, Tolkien says... This is, you know, one of the primary things that, you know, that he was interested in. You know, it's one of what we call the primary underlying thing of The Lord of the Rings. So let's talk a little bit about some of the things that you've been pointing out about that. Because when you look Mm -hmm. at the nature of mortality and immortality, and you sort of start from that framework, you can begin to see how that framework really informs the stories that Tolkien goes on to tell about his characters. Right. Very interesting. There's this... He doesn't want to put one above the other, because you're tempted... To think, oh, immortality is wonderful. When in fact, you find elves that Arwen very much will give up what she has to to pass away, as it were. So it's not necessarily that immortality is the better thing or that mortality is a better thing. They're designed for their separate species. So Yeah, and both Races. of them both of them have their benefits, mm-hmm. right? And that's if people sort of assume, well, obviously the immortals have what's good, and the mortal race is getting the shaft, which again sort of goes back to that perception of hierarchy that people have, like, oh, you know, why are men so inferior and elves so awesome? Death doesn't make them (laughs) inferior. It's not a mark of inferiority. It's a different gift. Right. To men, now, the elves call them strange gifts, right? They don't get it, (laughs) but it's still a gift. Mm -hmm. And I think that's such a crucial thing. So many times when people respond and think, well, you know, the elves are blessed and the men are cursed mm-hmm. by Iluvatar with death are making exactly the mistake that people who make mistakes make right, <laughs> in right. Tolkien. I mean, and they're falling into the same problem that so many people have fallen into. In case in point is the Numenorians who find they do want the immortality of the elves and that kind of hubris leads to their downfall. So that's one main point the Silmarillion is that they're yearning for something that is not a gift and is not meant for them and they're not appreciating what they have tends to lead to bad things. Right. No, exactly. <laughs> the Numenorians are the classic illustration. And also another similar sort of illustration within the history of people that you talk about in your thesis is the ringwraiths, too. Right. That that's what snares them. The mm-hmm. desire for immortality is the thing that leads them to want to, you know, for power. And ultimately, for a mortal, all desire for power leads eventually to the desire for power over death or power over life, <laughs> depending on how you define it. And we right. see this again in Numenor. That's what happens with our Pharazon, right? Mm-hmm. He doesn't start off saying, <laughs> I want to become immortal. He starts off establishing his power. He wants to be the, considered the king of all men, the king of all 
of, well, eventually of all Arda, but he wants to extend his power. But when he's getting old and he knows that his death is pretty soon, right. he realizes, you know, the truth that philosophers from time immemorial <laughs> have realized that worldly power is always a fleeting thing because in the end you're going to die and it's going everything's going to be stripped from you and you can't take it with you. So that right. recognition <laughs> of sort of his ultimate kind of metaphysical powerlessness undermining and almost like mocking all of his power and achievements, <laughs> you know, in Numenor is what prompts him to his final rebellion and his decision to break the ban and to try to seize Valinor and acquire immortality for himself. Right. It's therefore interesting and appropriate we can see the link between power and immortality, the desire for power and the desire for immortality in the ring rates as well. Power mm-hmm. over others is what they wanted from the rings. Dominion. Right. And now they actually don't have that at all. Yeah. And they're alive, but it's not immortality in that sense. They're basically spiritually withered. I mean, they have nothing left. So, I mean, even that, they don't gain what they seek. That's impossible. Yeah, so. exactly. And as is always the case in Tolkien. <laughs> right. Evil never works out. <laughs> Not just arbitrarily, but like in its nature, the desire for evil is a self-destructive desire. But yeah, I think the point that you make about the ring rapes is a really important one, and I think that we can see this is another way in which understanding the whole framework of mortality and immortality helps. Because when we're looking at what Bilbo says at the beginning of the Fellowship of the Ring about feeling thin and stretched, mm-hmm. right? what they say about Gollum and why, right. why Gollum is what he is, you know, Gandalf's explanation for that, a mortal who has... A ring of power doesn't die, but he doesn't gain more life. Like his spirit still has the same quantity. It's hard yeah. to quantify it, but it's it's kind of like a quantification. Mm-hmm. Right? It's a certain allotment of life. Um, it will bring you with vitality and satisfaction through whatever time you're allotted in your mortal life, and that's it. Mm-hmm. It's not designed. You just weren't. People aren't equipped in the way that elves are with that hugely powerful spirit and body not equipped for the long haul right it's actually a medieval idea there's this passage it's actually a funny passage by a pretty non-serious character by the reeve that is in the introduction to the reeve's tale reeve is old and he's got he's got white hair and he describes how his life he characterizes his life as a ton uh, that is a huge beer barrel and you know his whole life the tap has been running on the beer barrel and so the beer barrel of his life is sort of get starting to get low like the beer is getting low <laughs> in the beer barrel of his life mm-hmm. and when the beer all runs out is the time of death that is the time of natural expiring and that kind of concept of you know having this amount of life which is being it's not exactly being expended but mm-hmm. in one sense it's kind of being expended so what happens to Gollum what's just starting to happen <laughs> to Bilbo what is way advanced in the ring rates is the stretching out basically okay to take Chaucer's Reeves metaphor <laughs> and strain it it's like watering down the beer barrel right i was about to say that yeah. <laughs> exactly exactly so that you've got the same quite you don't get yep. more beer in the barrel <laughs> yeah but it just but it, but the tap keeps running it's and of it keeps, less quality exactly Point. Exactly. So in the end, what they have is what the ring rates have is just a mockery of life. Mm-hmm. Their spirit still exists, but it, it exists, you know, this sort of tortured semi existence that they have only under the domination of Sauron. Gollum is sort of the middle ground. He's not become a wraith yet, so he still has, you know, he's thin and tough still. He mm-hmm. still has his own life, his own body. The ring rates, their bodies are gone. I mean, they don't even have bodies anymore because that's. 
It's past. It's past. <laughs> <laughs> they, they don't even have enough to maintain a body, just a ghostly existence. But there's still enough to affect physical things, right? If you can still, mm-hmm. in, you know, sort of wield ghostly weapons and wear boots and things like that. <laughs> <laughs> but they don't have bodies. And as I said, Bilbo, just at the beginning of that, right. you know, like butter scraped over too much bread, mm-hmm. right? He uses a food metaphor instead of <laughs> a, a drink metaphor. But, but it's It's still, apt for hobbits. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. It's kind of similar. Yeah, the amount of butter that you have. So if, if life is like a big block of butter that you spread over your toast every day, then, you know, that's, yeah, that's the Bilbo metaphor. But again, elves, it's not true that elves don't decline at all. Right. I mean, in one sense, you could just look at them as having, like, thousands of times more beer than, <laughs> than it's like this, this huge, enormous beer barrel. Right. Because they do decline. I mean, they, yeah. their, their spirit is lesser than it was at the beginning of their mm-hmm. lives. Which sort of leads one to wonder what are elves going to be like right before the end of the world? You know, are they actually going to age? I mean, are they going to, you know, are they going to be dwindling as the world is sort of winding down and the end of the age approaches, whenever that is, you know, or that is the end of the world approaches? Mm-hmm. You know, are the elves actually going to, to but, age? I don't know. I yeah. mean, it seems possible that and they will. You do have, even, I mean, within the books, you do have the elves, they're waning. They're already leaving for Valinor. They don't even belong in Middle-earth. So they're taking their physical bodies at that point to mm-hmm. Valinor. It's not even waiting for the body to fail before they leave. So right. they're not necessarily aging in that respect, but there's still evidence there that everything is slowing down. Yeah. yeah. They don't talk about it as aging, and you would sort of doubt that it would appear as, like, wrinkly and graying bodies. <laughs> but their spirits fade. Fading is the word that they, right. they use to describe that same phenomenon. I was thinking of, like, the examples of Aragorn yeah. and Beor in the way they accept death as opposed to Gollum and the Ringwraiths who deny it. So yeah. there is that kind of, at the end, allowing it to happen, which is the positive counter to holding on to it. In the end, it's simply a metaphysical standpoint. That is, it's entirely a faith claim. What do you think about death? Do you accept death as a gift? Mm-hmm. Or do you resist death as an evil? Right? And right. the more you resist it as an evil, the worse off you are. And the more harm you're ending up doing to yourself. Right. I mean, it's one of the great ironies, one of the great tragedies of the Numenorean story. Not just that they desired to seek immortality and that they tried to seize immortality and were not content with the gift that they had been given. Right. But that it was impossible anyway. (laughs) (laughs) It's just that, in fact, they just would have died quicker in Valinor. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, had they won the war, which is silly, but had they won the war... (laughs) They still wouldn't have have died. It was hopeless. It's just not possible. (laughs) But again, so either you go kicking and screaming and you fight against it or you accept it. And again, it's do you accept it as a gift or do you resist it? as an evil. So the people who accept it as a gift receive the benefits of it, which they are supposed to have. Right. Which it's designed to have. And that is... In sorrow we must go, but not in despair. Behold, we are not bound forever in the circles of the world, and beyond them is more than memory. Farewell. And I really like the point that you made there in your thesis about the significance of his phrase more than memory. memory. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's what elves hold on to, is memory. So even when they depart to Valinor, they have these memories of the past, of the glory of Middle-earth. And in the end, that ends up being their tragedy, that they they know what it was like, and that's what they yearn for. But Aragorn, when he leaves, doesn't have those memories. He has something a little more peaceful than that, even. Just not remembering it and pining for it for eternity. 
Yeah, so. and it's such a great illustration of what what the gift of death is about and the sense in which it's a gift, right? Because mm-hmm. um, again, it's so tempting to think of it from the Numenorean perspective. I mean, what Tolkien dramatizes in the people who are resistant to death is basically like the fundamental viewpoint of humanity <laughs> over all of history. I mean, right. everybody wants to resist death. Our own fixation with medical advance and <laughs> things like that in our society is kind of Numenorean. Right. You know? <laughs> this, this, so, I mean, you know, life support and everything. can imagine, you know, what Faramir would say about that if he, <laughs> if he were looking at, like, hospice centers and things. So we tend to sort of make those kinds of assumptions about it, but what he's mm-hmm. describing is something totally different in the relationship. Elves have memory, and... It's not just memories. It's not purely tragic in the sense of, well, in the end, they're left with nothing except memories, mm-hmm. as if that's really slighting. Because we're told that for elves, dreaming and memory is different than it is for humans. And in Valinor, the memory of these things is evergreen. And so that there's a way in which memory to elves is more present than memory. To, it's not just like I can kind of recall the visual image of this thing that happened, but that's all I have. <laughs> there's something more to it. But... In the end, it's still only memory. Right. It's not, it's not physical. It's not there. They can't right. keep it present. So Right. But what Aragorn says is available to humans is more than memory. They are passing away. <laughs> They're going outside the circles of the world. And where they are going to is their real homeland. Like, that is where they are destined to be. Mm-hmm. It's sort of an interesting thing. I mean, elves are tied to the world. This is their homeland. Like, they belong here. Right. Mortals don't. Mm -hmm. They stay here for a while, but it's really not very long. It's a small kind of... It's an important part of their existence, presumably, but it's not (laughs) the ultimate part of their existence. They belong elsewhere. That's why, like it or not, they all go there because that other place is where they're supposed to be. And we know nothing about it. I mean, we're not Mm -hmm. told anything about it in the books, but that one sentence of Aragorn's... (laughs) It's the most revealing thing, which says mm-hmm. a lot, but it's the most revealing thing we <laughs> ever learn about. The Beyond is more than memory. Right. I read a critic who talks about how their spirit was annihilated. And I think it's worth noting that it's not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they still exist, even though they're not in the world. They still exist. It's not as if that's it. They're gone. Yeah, I definitely agree. Yeah. And that seems uh-huh. to be a very serious <laughs> error. Uh-huh. Because then you're basically taking Tolkien as advocating a kind of, a deep kind of nihilism. Right. In the end, extinction is awesome and that's very very different from what Tolkien is suggesting that concept is explicitly contradicted in that passage at the beginning of the Silmarillion which alludes to the second music that will be sung by the children of Iluvatar including men basically when there's going to be the new heaven and the new earth and there I'm quoting not Tolkien but (laughs) the book of Revelation Mm -hmm. Because that does seem to be what he's sort of pointing to, that there will come a second music, a second creation, just as we see right. at the end of the Bible, that when this world is done, there is then the creation of a new heaven and a new earth. And that idea does seem to lie behind what Tolkien describes there. But anyway, mm-hmm. both elves and men seem to be involved in that one. And what <laughs> things are going to look like there, we don't know. Clearly, the spirits of men have not just been annihilated because right. they're, they're still around <laughs> when it comes to that. So, yeah, no, that's a very important distinction to make. One interesting case in which to apply this sort of doctrine of what mortality, of what death means, what human death means in Tolkien, is the story of Turin Turambar. And this I've alluded 
to this part of your thesis <laughs> in my podcast before. And I think it's a really interesting way of looking at that story, which, of course, what many very understandably note about the story of Tour and Turambar is how very depressing it is. Right. <laughs> it seems like a huge downer, which I mean, it seems yeah. like a huge downer. It is very And now depressing. it's in a whole separate volume, so you can just be... <laughs> exactly, right. You can, you can, there's, there's, there's more depression to go around. But you made a really interesting argument that basically when you apply what Tolkien says throughout the rest of his works about death to the story of Tour and Turambar, that it begins to look a little different. Right. It's, it's really not as depressing as it first comes across to be. Turin does die and his sister does die and And his so, mom dies. And his mom <laughs> dies and his father is just oh poor guy. But I mean so there is that kind of just complete loss. But at the same time when you look at death as a gift, it's a good thing. So it's an escape. We talk about the curse that Morgoth lays on her and his whole family and it plagues them throughout the entire story. Their whole life is just unfortunate event one after another the version of the story that is published in the children of hurin the exchange between morgoth and hurin is much longer and much more interesting <laughs> i think in the children of hurin than in the silmarillion account so i think it's worth reading at length for people who are not that familiar with it morgoth says to hurin behold the shadow of my thought shall lie upon them that is his family wherever they go and my hate shall pursue them to the ends of the world and hurin says you speak in vain for you cannot see them nor govern them from afar, not while you keep this shape and desire still to be a king visible upon earth. Hurin's first claim is actually your power is not as extensive as you think. You think your power can go to the ends of the world. It can't go to the ends of the world. And Morgoth sort of is like, oh, no, like, you know, <laughs> I am... I am the elder king, Melkor, first and mightiest of all the Valar, who was before the world and made it. The shadow of my purpose lies upon Arda, and all that is in it bends slowly and surely to my will. But upon all whom you love, my thought shall weigh as a cloud of doom, and it shall bring them down into darkness and despair. Wherever they go, evil shall arise. Whenever they speak, their words shall bring ill counsel. Whatsoever they do shall turn against them. They shall die without hope, cursing both life and death. So he is, of course, mm -hmm. asserting his power. No, 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 I do, in fact, rule the entire world, which is what he has deceived himself with the whole time. Right. But, of course, that is going to turn out to be true. You know, he does have power. Not over the whole world. He is right. not the Lord of Arda, as he claims to be. But he is going to be able to bring that curse home so far. Mm-hmm. Hurin responds, Do you forget to whom you speak? Such things you spoke long ago to our fathers, but we escaped from your shadow. And now we have knowledge of you, for we have looked on the faces that have seen the light and heard the voices that have spoken with Manway. Before Arda you were, but others also, and you did not make it. And so this is when he then uh, insults him by calling him a slave, an escaped thrall of Manway. He utters his last defiance of Morgoth. This last, then, I will say to you, thrall Morgoth, said Hurin, and it comes not of the lore of the Eldar, but is put into my heart in this hour. You are not the lord of men, and shall not be, though all Arda and Menel fall in your dominion. Beyond the circles of the world you shall not pursue those who refuse you. Beyond the circles of the world I will not pursue them, said Morgoth, for beyond the circles of the world there is nothing. But within them they shall not escape me until they enter into nothing. You I, lie, <laughs> says Hurin. And he's right. Right, right. And that's just the thing. There isn't nothing. There's no annihilation. There is something past there. But what Morgoth is trying to do is cause that kind of fear of death, that there is nothing. This is all there is. And it's 
kind of putting a rift between Iluvatar, who grants the gift of death, and men who are meant to embrace it. So men are turning their back on death as if they fear it, and that's kind of causes this greater rift between the creator and the children. So That's the way that Tolkien characterizes the fear of death from the beginning, that mm-hmm. death wasn't ever something to fear. It was a gift. It is the path by which humans are joined with Iluvatar, but Morgoth has put darkness upon it. Right. So yeah, he wants them to believe it is annihilation. There's nothing. All that they have is here in the world, and here in the world is all under his dominion. Mm-hmm. Both of those things are wrong, though the first one is more wrong than the second <laughs> one. He does have power in the world. It's not ultimate power, but he does mm-hmm. have power in the world. But he is absolutely wrong about the extinction. And what we see there is not only Morgoth attempting to deceive Hurin as he has deceived humanity in general mm-hmm. about the fact that there's nothing beyond the circles of the world. We also see him trying to deceive himself, right? Because he knows He's fooling himself about the extent of his power in the world. Right. As Hurin is saying to him, I was skipping some bits along the way. Many of the bits that I skipped were Hurin emphasizing, look, even in the world, you're not like number one person in the world. You were like a thrall of man. (laughs) You're currently on the lamb and he's going to come collect you at some point. (laughs) You know, so even in the world, you're fooling yourself. The bit about the annihilation, it's not just a lie designed to freak out men and separate them from Iluvatar. It does do that, and mm-hmm. that is the purpose of it, but also, it's like he's trying to deceive himself, too. He wants to believe his power is now restricted to within the circle of the world mm-hmm. because he's descended into the world. And not only is he fooling himself about the extent of that, he really wants to believe there's nothing beyond it, mm-hmm. right? That he is the ruler of all these things. And that, therefore, he has them entirely within his power. And that he is going to curse forever the family of Hurin. But he lies about that. Right. In the end, they are (laughs) inevitably going to escape him. Right. And they do. And the death that is often seen as a tragedy in that respect actually isn't. That is their triumph over him. The fact that they not necessarily go against the fact that there's nothing, but... They show him that he is wrong, no matter what he thinks, that they can escape and that they can escape the world that he controls. So. Yeah, yeah, and I think that this is, as you pointed out in your thesis, really most poignantly emphasized at, at Morwen's death. Mm-hmm. It seems a little puzzling at first that when Hurin and Morwen are reunited at the place where Turin and Neonor died, mm-hmm. the tombstone has been erected for them, and that's where Hurin finds Morwen. And she doesn't know what happened exactly. And her last words, you know, she says, They are lost. I know it, he said, but you are not. Almost. I am spent. I shall go with the sun. Now little time is left. If you know, tell me, how did she find him? But Hurin did not answer. Her last (laughs) word is a question which he doesn't answer. Right. (laughs) uh, Which is itself really interesting. But you can see sort of the mercy of that, right? No good will come of knowing that. Like, it's a really sad story, Morwen. And, (laughs) like, if you know it's only going to cause you more suffering right now, you're actually kind of better off just dying without knowing. Mm -hmm. Because once you're dead, that suffering will be done. So why maximize the suffering in the brief span of life that you have left to you? But when she dies... When the sun went down, Morwen sighed and clasped his hand and was still. And Hurin knew that she had died. He looked down at her in the twilight, and it seemed to him that the lines of grief and cruel hardship were smoothed away. She was not conquered, he said. 
and he closed her eyes and sat unmoving beside her as the night drew down. She was not conquered. Yep. <laughs> she, in the moment of her death, is triumphant. Right. right. And she is the most triumphant, uh, really, of the four. <laughs> because she's the only one who doesn't submit. Who doesn't submit at all to despair. Who do, I mean, even Hurin has his moment. He, mm-hmm. In the end, he doesn't. And she essentially submits to death. Mm-hmm. We don't get a deathbed speech from her like Aragorn's or something. But she... It's, just, just, it's the same kind of thing, though. The same kind of acceptance of it. And, and in that respect. There's no other way to say it except she was not conquered. I, yeah. I don't know better words for that. <laughs> yeah, it's, that's not the same as saying she has triumphed. Right. <laughs> <laughs> she didn't exactly, but she wasn't conquered. Mm-hmm. And now she's escaped. And her suffering is done. And you can see that in the smoothing of the lines of grief on her face. Now her sorrow is over. She is out of Morgoth's reach. Mm-hmm. There is not only a possible escape. You know, when Morgoth has a mortal imprisoned, it's not just that they have a possible avenue of escape. They have an inevitable avenue of escape. Yeah. <laughs> Death. When they pass out of the circles of the world and he has no more authority over them and he mm-hmm. cannot get at them. It would be oversimplification to say that the suicides of Turin and Neonor and eventually Hurin are awesome. Are, you're right. <laughs> Good job. You killed yourself. Yes, exactly. One could sort of take this argument that is the, well, remember death is a good thing. And basically, I mean, we sort of twist it around to say, and therefore suicide is the ultimate good, right? It's the ultimate act of virtue, which clearly it is not and wouldn't be. How then would you describe the deaths of Turin and Neonor? What do we do with them? It is tragic in that respect. It's hard to say it's a good thing, but it's also kind of the last avenue of escape. So I'm I'm not really sure. Yeah, escape. No. Neonor's suicide certainly seems to be an escape. Mm-hmm. Turin's less so. Yeah. Turin doesn't even commit suicide <laughs> so much as he executes himself. Right. Right. And it's not even himself. Like the sword <laughs> executes him. I mean, he has that conversation with the sword, <laughs> and the sword is like, "Will you put me to death?" And the sword's like, "Yeah, I'll take care of it." Right. And so the sword wants to kill him mm-hmm. out of justice. Right. Because he has, with it, shed blood wrongfully, both by accident in the killing of Beleg and on purpose in the killing of Brondir. So, and both of those wrongful deaths, the sword would like to see avenged. So Turin has like an impromptu trial for himself <laughs> <laughs> there, condemns himself to death, hires the sword to be his executioner, and dies. I mean, that's mm-hmm. very sort of much the direction that that goes. So with Turin's death, there's a kind of fitness. It's not just an act of despair. Right? It's an act of the full recognition. His eyes are opened to all of the things that he has done. And he realizes sort of two things, I guess. Not only how thoroughly he has been ensnared in evil, but he's mm-hmm. not just trying to escape from evil he's been ensnared in. He is recognizing his own culpability. Right. And he's like, I, it's not just like, I am the victim of Morgoth. Which he had actually, up until that point, he tends to deny his own fault for everything. He just kind of walks away from it as if, oh, this is my burden. But I even changing his name and things like that. But at last, he's finally realizing that it's not just an outside force. You've actually made decisions that have influenced you here. Right, so. right, exactly. Mm-hmm. I mean, his name, Turambar, Master <laughs> of Doom, mm-hmm. he still sees himself as like his fate, his destiny, is this outside <laughs> thing. That he's at battle with, mm-hmm. in which he like 
<laughs> stupidly because he's beaten. Yeah. Right. Thy doom is not in your name, but in yourself, as Gwyndor has tried to warn him. He has finally taken responsibility. In a sense, there's a different kind of defiance in his death, a defiance of Morgoth, that is. By his death, he is almost sort of saying, okay, actually, in the end, the story of my life is not primarily guy who is persecuted by Morgoth. <laughs> he denies Morgoth the credit for destroying him. Mm-hmm. Like, actually, I take responsibility for like, the bad things that I did and that happened to me. I could have done otherwise and I didn't. So I'm to blame. And in that, I mean, that's kind of a pretty deadly insult to Morgoth. This, you have not succeeded. I screwed up. Yep. And so therefore, I'm going to give up my life like as a consequence, as a punishment. I'm going to sort of accept a punishment for the bad things that I've done. With Neonor, it's simply an escape. Mm-hmm. And there she recognizes, we can see in the moment before her death, both her recognition of how trapped she has been and, of course, her view of Turin is very different from his, right? right? Uh-huh. In her play on his name, right? Oh, Master of Doom by Doom Master. Uh-huh. She sees him, you were hopelessly ensnared. And, of course, she sees herself as even more hopelessly ensnared, which she is. She is way less culpable yeah. <laughs> in Turin, certainly. Now, she did one thing which was to follow along with the party from Doriath when she wasn't supposed to. Mm-hmm. But that's really the only choice that she makes that has any real... Im- I mean, once she has her dragon-induced amnesia, right. I mean, it's, she doesn't act culpably at any point there. Mm-hmm. So then when she recognizes this, she realizes she's been trapped and she's been under the manipulation of Morgoth and she escapes it, right? So the other thing she says to Turin, mm-hmm. or Master of Doom by Doom Mastered, Oh, happy to be dead. dead. And she recognizes that's the escape. That's the only escape. Mm-hmm. And she sees that as the only possible escape. Now, is that a culpable choice on her part? It's a choice she makes. Yeah. Whereas to this point, she hasn't had a choice. And, and that it's one that she is in control of. Yeah. So she is responsible for it. In the end, I don't think that it's quite fair to see the story as commending her choice. Mm-hmm. But it She's also not villainized for it either. I mean, I think that either way, to see it as like a heroic act or to see it as a villainous act, both don't seem to fit the mm-hmm. way it's described in the story, basically. I think that both sides... Like, to throw away your life is different than to give it up when your time has come. Mm-hmm. It's even different from what Turin does, which is submit to capital punishment <laughs> as a consequence of the capital offenses that he has, in fact, done. I mean, he just murdered Brandier like an hour ago. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, a couple hours ago, he's been unconscious for a while. But anyway, even that is different than her suicide because she sees no other way out, no other way of escape. But for her, there is no other way. She sort of sees that. Her view is limited. So her death is, I think, tragic. It's tragic and not heroic. But it's also not horrible. Right. I mean, it's understandable. And... Hurin's death is the most complicated of all. Mm-hmm. And the description is so odd. He drowns himself? Yeah. Sort of? After he delivers the necklace of the dwarves, the Nauglamir, the Thingol, and Melian, and then Morgoth's spell over him is snapped, and he says, I am his thrall no longer, so now he is conquered in some sense. Mm-hmm. He's now escaped 
completely from the thraldom of Morgoth and what he does. Then he turned away and passed out from the thousand caves, and all that saw him fell back before his face, and none sought to withstand his going, nor did any know whither he went. But it is said that Hurin would not live thereafter, being bereft of all purpose and desire, and cast himself at last into the western sea, and so ended the mightiest of the warriors of mortal men. So he casts himself into the sea, mm-hmm. and so in that sense, his death is most like to Neonor's. It seems important that it's cast into the Western Sea. Yeah, it's, it's almost metaphorical in that sense. Yeah, I'm not is even it, sure. Yeah, because yeah, yeah, there, there's Sokka. Did they say his purpose was done? Is that that he was pur- that he, he was, was purposeless? purposeless? Yeah. Yeah. So it's not like resigning yourself to death. It's not really what he does. He actually actively throws himself into the sea. Right. But also, I, what would he do if he lived longer? Would there be anything else there for him? So He would not live, right? He's right. done. And again, I don't think that that's like Neonar's choice. That's not a great choice. I mean, to yeah. say, like, if it's not time for him to die yet, then presumably, by definition... There is something else he could do, mm-hmm. or what he does is also not exactly despair, either. He seeks death, but there's a kind of finality to Hurin's career. Although he's not dying peacefully of old age, or even as Morwen was, Morwen seems to die just like of a kind of exhaustion. Right. I mean, she's not exactly dying of old age. But anyway, Hurin is done. I mean, he's finished. He's having escaped the thraldom of Morgoth he has completed his job and he does seek death but again it's not like he's throwing away his life in despair or anger or hopelessness he just (laughs) puts him in a strange category because if you try to kill yourself the obvious contrast would be Denethor right Mm -hmm. Denethor kills himself in pride and despair as Gandalf says both pride and despair hopelessness right I'm giving up on everything and so I'm just going to die because there's no other point in living and pride. Like, I have the power to control, to rule my own end. Mm-hmm. I have the power to determine when it's time to die. Both of those things, Gandalf says, are not appropriate, not right. Horton's death doesn't seem to be quite right. like that. There's not that kind of the pride to it, certainly. It's not as if he walked out and he's like, well, I'm not going to listen to what anyone says. I'll just throw myself into the ocean. It's its own category, in a way. It does seem to be sort of more like... To submit to death like Aragorn does is ultimately an act of humility, to humble yourself and your own desires based upon what you see and know, and to accept the gift that Iluvatar has given on his terms and not on your terms. And what Huron does is not the opposite of that, which Denethor's death is very different from that. Huron's, it's not. It's like if you accept the gift... A little bit early. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's, it's, it's not quite the same as, you know, Denethor is not accepting a gift, mm-hmm. right? In fact, it's like he's trying to become the giver. So he's trying to usurp the power of Iluvatar to <laughs> determine his end, mm-hmm. right? Hurin is not exactly... No. The attitude is not of that, that attitude of usurpation. You know, it's, it's different. I'm wondering if there's something with the Western Sea, with seeking relief. Because, I mean, that tends to be where Bilbo and Frodo go when they are worn out to find relief. So I'm wondering if that kind of directional yeah. thing is submission, in a sense, kind of like Aragorn's. But... I agree. I mean, that's a really interesting parallel. Because, mm-hmm. of course, I am often asked the question, and I've answered it before in other podcasts, but I will do so again. <laughs> what happens to Bilbo and Frodo when they go to Valinor? They die. Right. Soon. <laughs> <laughs> that's the answer. You know, we know that mortals, when they go to Valinor, they burn out more quickly. 
So they'll both be able to achieve healing. They'll be healed, but then they will die. Mm -hmm. So, you know, in a sense, there is a kind of similarity between what Bilbo and Frodo achieve and what Hurin perhaps was attempting to achieve or gesturing towards. Mm -hmm. You could see, now this is a, seems a strange way of looking at it, but you could see Frodo's departure from Middle-earth to Valinor as a kind of suicide? Oh, yeah. To say that sounds so unfair, like it, with all of the things that suicide is freighted with. But it is voluntary departure from this world. Would Frodo have lived for many more years? Sure. Could he have done other things? Like maybe Hurin could have, you know, would Hurin have, have lived longer? I mean, it sort of seems like it. He still seems to have his physical vitality. Could he have lived for many more years? Probably. Could he have accomplished something while living those years? Possibly. I mean, had his sort of mindset been different? Could Frodo have a... Possibly. Probably. I mean, he dies while still really prime of his life. Mm -hmm. So, But both of them, he's been wounded, right? And it's an act of mercy for him to be permitted to go. There's no, there's mm -hmm. nothing wrong with his desire to leave Midor. Right. Is that what Hurin is also seeking, right? He doesn't mm -hmm. get a boat. No. So he just sets <laughs> out swim. to swim for Valinor, right? In an attempt to find healing, or at least, or more probably, as he does, death. That, to me, is kind of interesting. That it's, by him, the same gesture as it is for, for Bilbo and Frodo. And therefore, possibly, mm -hmm. no more culpable, no more bad thing than what Bilbo and Frodo do. Or they succeed in doing what he wishes to happen. Because certainly, goodness... If Frodo is scarred, poor Hurin. I mean, good grief. <laughs> I mean, it's, it, it, Frodo went through a lot, but yeah, come but, on. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't think I don't think it's worse actually than what than what Hurin went through. I mean, if anybody needed the retirement in Valinor <laughs> yeah. for to achieve healing, Hurin did. Now, of course, that wasn't open to him as mm -hmm. it was open to Frodo, because we're still first age. The highway to Valinor hasn't been made yet. For anybody to leave Middle-earth and return. I'd never really thought about Hurin that way before. But that does seem to be a fitting way to think about it. And it can't mm -hmm. be a coincidence that he threw they, himself into the Western right, Sea. Right, there's I a mean, reason that word is there. Uh, any so. number of bodies of water he could have thrown himself into <laughs> drowning had been his only goal. So yeah, I mean, I think that that's... You, you can also see it in a way. He himself, in his conversation with Morgoth, recalls sort of the big picture of humankind and their history and their relationship with Morgoth. And as you talk about in your thesis, the humans, as soon as they wake up, start moving westward right, right. to seek the light. Mm -hmm. So Hurin's just taking the next step. Yeah. <laughs> Actually gets to the edge of the land, and he alone of mortals <laughs> sets off swimming towards the light in the west. That migratory impulse mm -hmm. that we see in mankind is a good one. I mean, they're drawn towards the light. They're drawn towards the west, because that is where light, and that is where goodness is. So... Even in that moment of dying, even in that moment of apparently seeking death, he's still facing westward. And that seems like that has to be a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> right? So, yeah. Not that jumping like lemmings <laughs> off into the sea is like the next logical step of the migration of humans, but in Hurin's case. Okay. There are still two more episodes that will be ready to deliver very soon. The second session of the Silmarillion Seminar, and the first installment of a very special little podcast miniseries, a roundtable discussion that I had with musician John DiBartolo and painter Ted Naismith. So keep on the lookout for those. Thanks for listening, and Godspeed. <laughs>